For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Daniel 9, verse 1 through 25, this amazing prophetic um, word from Daniel. Now, last week we left off with this passage right here, Isaiah 42, verse 8 and 9 where God states, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. God makes it explicit that he pre-authenticates his written word to us by giving us predictive material in the Old Testament. And he does this because he understands that we're going to have lots of questions that we're going to be skeptical about the Bible because there are so many competing voices out there claiming to be from God. And God wanted to make sure in a clarion way that he was speaking through the Bible. Now, we're going to be looking at an amazing prophecy in Daniel 9. And there's tons of detail that we can get into, but I want to give you sort of a a more brief version, and we can drill down into more detail as we maybe discuss after the teaching. Now let's begin in Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. So we can accurately date this to about 538 B.C. And Daniel probably arrived in Babylon as a captive in about 605 B.C. So he was probably 15 years old when he went into captivity. So by this time, he's probably in his 80s. He's an older man as he is experiencing what we'll see is a, an amazing vision. Verse 2, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So Daniel was doing a Bible study. He was studying the Old Testament. Jeremiah was written shortly at or before um, Daniel went into exile in Babylon. And the prophecy he's referring to actually pertains to the captivity that they were in. We look at Jeremiah 25, verse 11. Jeremiah, the prophet, says, This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So Jeremiah predicted in advance that the Israelites would go into Babylon in captivity because of their disobedience toward God. And he also says in Jeremiah 29, verse 10 and 11, you will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things that I promised. God gave promises to the nation of Israel, starting from the time of Abraham all the way through Moses. And God says, I'm going to remain faithful to what I promised you, and I'll bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. So, Apparently, this captivity, this exile from the land of Israel would only last 70 years. So Daniel's sort of doing a mental calculation. He's thinking to himself, okay, 
We arrived here in 605 BC. This was 538, so they're coming up on 70 years. And Daniel's starting to feel anxious. Will God actually come through on his promise? Now, I think it's worth noting that Daniel actually believed in the reality of predictive prophecy. This wasn't a symbolic thing to him. He wasn't viewing this as purely some sort of metaphor or allegory. He, he thought that these were literal 70 years. So he says, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition. And he acknowledges in his prayer, which we're not going to cover, all of the things that Israel did. And he pleads with God for forgiveness and that God would restore them back to their land. And just as he's praying, this angelic being actually gives Daniel this incredible prophecy. Starting in verse 24, seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So this prophecy actually spans uh, really a long period of time, starting with where Daniel was at in 538 BC, all the way till the end of human history for obvious reasons. First of all, some of these things haven't been fulfilled. For example, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Clearly, we don't live in these times, right? So this part hadn't been fulfilled yet. Other parts have been fulfilled. For example, to anoint the most holy place. This probably refers to the temple. And remember, uh, the temple at this point was laying in ruins in Jerusalem. So this might be referring to the reconstruction of the temple under Ezra, or maybe the future reconstruction of the temple that we mentioned last week. This right here happened in the first century, to atone for wickedness. Now this word, to atone, simply means to make restitution for some sort of grievance. And the Bible teaches that all of us have offended God, that we've done things wrong that require some sort of restitution on our part. Because God cannot be in a relationship with imperfect beings. He's morally perfect. So there's this great divide between us and God, and he decided through the man Jesus Christ to actually bridge that divide by making reparations, by atoning for our wrongdoing so that we could experience forgiveness and a relationship with him. So this part actually took place. I think one thing that puzzles a lot of people is the question of what do these sevens represent? Because in Hebrew, the word seven can refer to seven days, but it could also refer to seven years. Really depends on the context. So it raises a question, this period of time that the angel is referring to, these 77s, is he talking about days or years? Again, I think the context gives us some clues to, to suggest that these are probably talking about years. 
If you look at chapter 9, verse 11, Daniel states that all Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. So he's studying not only the book of Jeremiah, he's also looking at the five books of Moses, looking at the law. And he points out that the reason why they were in Babylon was related to the fact that they had broken the law. And specifically, um, he was probably thinking about the Sabbath law in Leviticus 25, verse 3 and 4. God said, For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath, a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. So, I don't know if you're familiar with Jewish law, but, you know, the first uh, six days of the week, you're supposed to work, and then on the seventh day, you're supposed to rest, the Sabbath, which is Saturday. And apparently, there was something analogous to this in Leviticus 25, where for six years, people were to plant and, and harvest, and they were to gather enough produce or grain so that the seventh year, they were to let the land rest. And they needed to trust that God would actually provide all of those six years so that they can make it through the seventh year. Well, in Leviticus 26, verse 33 and 34, God said, your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. So he says, look, in case you decide that you're not going to follow this law, I'm going to keep it for you. I'm going to send you on a little vacation and it's not going to be fun or relaxing. <laughs> and he said, then your land can actually rest. Well, we know that this was in large part why the nation of Israel was actually in Babylon. The Old Testament explicitly states this in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20 and 21. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So these sevens must be referring to years because that's the context, right? Remember, Daniel is praying to God as he's studying the book of Jeremiah, realizing that the 70 years are nearly complete. So it must be that the angel was revealing to him that there will be 70 sevens of years that are decreed. Then he says in verse 25, no one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. All right, we're getting into another one of those cryptic sections of Daniel. Let's see if we can try to break this down a little bit. First of all, it's worth noting that this word, the anointed one, in Hebrew, it's the word Mashiach, where we get the word Messiah from. 
And in Greek, uh, the transliteration of that word is Christus, where we get the word Christ. So this prophecy refers to the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who, if you look at the Old Testament, would come and actually atone for the moral wrongdoing of the entire human race. So he says, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Let's see if we could try to graph this out. I'm sort of a visual learner, so this, this helps me out. From the issuing of the decree to rebuild until the Messiah comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So if you do some math here, seven sevens equals 49 years. Seven times 62 um, sevens is 434. Add those two together and you get 483 years. All right, if you're a humanities major here, um, trust me with these numbers, you can look at them later. This is making sense to all the science people here. Um, but there is one problem, okay? You have to convert the Hebrew year to the Gregorian calendar year. Um, you know, in the Hebrew calendar, there are 360 days in a year. Unlike our calendar, the Gregorian calendar, which has 365. So, if you take the Hebrew year of 360 days and you multiply it by 483, you get this aggregate number of 173,880 days. Then you divide it by 365 to, to convert to the Gregorian calendar year and you get 476 years. So that gives us the span of time from the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, the city, until the Messiah comes. There will be 476 Gregorian calendar years. Now, we need to nail the issuing of the decree. And luckily, the Bible provides that. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. This is uh, just shortly after. Uh, this prophecy early the following spring in the month of Nisan during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes reign I Nehemiah was serving the king his wine I had never before appeared sad in his presence so the king asked me why do you look so sad okay a little bit of background Nehemiah he was a cupbearer and the cupbearer played a very special role for the king because the king was constantly Afraid and, and really paranoid about people trying to seize the throne through intrigue. So whenever somebody would serve him wine, he would have his trusty cupbearer there to take a little sip of the wine to make sure that there wasn't any poison inside of it. So it was a pretty good gig. I mean, there's only really two things you had to do as the cupbearer, drink wine all day and not die, right? <laughs> so... Apparently, Nehemiah's countenance was fallen, and the king says, why do you look so sad? He says, you don't look sick to me. You sure you're okay? 
Uh, you must be deeply troubled. Nehemiah said, I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? He's referring to the city of Jerusalem. The king asked, well, how can I help you? Nehemiah shoots up a quick prayer to God and he says, if it pleases the king and if you are pleased with me, your servant, Send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Pretty bold uh, request from Nehemiah. Well, the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, well, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After how, uh, I told him how long I would be gone, the king actually agreed to my request. So look, things are looking pretty good for Nehemiah. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king... Let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. So he's like, look, I'm, I'm fearful that marauders and people in these desolate areas are going to try to rob me as I'm trying to make my way to Jerusalem. So will you give me papers that ensure my safety? Well, King Artaxerxes says, yes, I'll do that. And also Nehemiah's like, by the way, can I ask another thing? Please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. He's like, man, I'm on a roll. I might as well ask for some more. <laughs> He's like, uh, yeah, can you throw in a, a Lowe's gift card for everything that we need to build this? <laughs> Well, the king granted this request because the gracious hand of God was upon me. So <clears throat> this right here represents the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Notice, he doesn't say build the temple. He says rebuild the city and its walls. That's an important detail in the prophecy. Well, we know a lot about this guy, Artaxerxes I of Persia. Here is the Wikipedia page course, you know, these are the most reliable things on earth, right? Um, we know a lot about him. Artaxerxes I, he's a Persian king. Uh, his name was Artaxerxes I Lajumanus. Um, and in Greek, his name was Makrokir, which uh, means big hand. Um, must have had a hand thing. It's not clear. Um, but Based on the, the records that we have from Persia and the Assyrian king lists, uh, we can reliably date his reign to 465 B.C. to 424 B.C. So if we have the starting point for his, his ascension year as the king, we can take that and date the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So 465 B.C., represents the beginning of Artaxerxes' reign. And you subtract 20, because remember, B.C. goes down as it moves toward A.D., and that leaves you with 445 B.C. Now, the Persian uh, regnal year does not line up with the Gregorian calendar year and so you actually have to subtract yet another year to 444 B.C. 
And that gives you the issuing of the decree to rebuild in 444 BC. So if you do simple math, you can get the arrival of the Messiah, 444 BC, plus 476 equals 8032. And since there's no zero year, you know, like when you look at a number line, you have negative one, zero, and then one. When you look at um, the calendar going from BC to AD, there's no zero year. So it goes from one BC to 81. So that means that we have to add another year, making it 8033 the most reliable date for Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and the year of his death. Now, um, as you can see, most scholars agree that 30 and 33 AD is probably uh, the most likely two dates for Jesus' death. And I think that 33 AD is the best for a number of reasons. First of all, the Gospels tell us that Jesus died under the appointment of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And um, we see this, for example, in John 18, verse 28 and 29. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? He was the one who actually sentenced Jesus to death. And again, we have reliable dates for his, his appointment in Judea, AD 26 through 36, this 10-year period. If you add this detail from the Gospels, which suggests that the Passover um, fell only on four, fr- uh, that the Passover fell on Jesus' death, we know that Passover only fell on four Fridays from AD 26 through 36. AD 27, AD 30, 33, and 36. Now, in John 2, verse 20, Jesus cleanses the temple. You know, this is where he fashions that whip and starts basically knocking over the money changers' tables. John gives us this really interesting detail that says that this happened 46 years after Herod successfully constructed the temple. And again, from history, we know that Herod completed the temple in 18 BC. So you add 46 years and you get 8029. So you would have to eliminate 8027. And then this final detail here where John actually records four Passovers. So you have 80, 29 to 30, 30 to 31, 31 to 32, 32 to 33. And so you can eliminate 80, 36 and 80, 30, which arrives at 80, 33, the year that Jesus died. And so when you put this all together, I know there's a lot of details here, but I hope you're seeing the big picture, which is that Daniel predicted Jesus' triumphal entry and his death in Jerusalem 500 years in advance. An amazing prophecy. 
You know, I remember seeing this as a, as a younger Christian believer, and I had tons of questions about the Bible. I wasn't certain that the Bible was correct on all accounts. I questioned sometimes whether God even existed, and then somebody hit me with this prophecy, and I just remember it rocking me and thinking to myself, there's evidence to actually believe that this stuff is true. It's not just blind faith. I'm not just like making this up. It's not a delusion. It's reality. But of course, I'm sure there are a number of really sharp people in this room who probably have a lot of questions. Now, last week we introduced this atheist, Donald Kruger, and his book, What is Atheism?, or Douglas Kruger, and he lays out five criteria for predictive prophecy, legitimate predictive prophecy. First, he says, the prophecy must be clear and it must contain sufficient detail to make its fulfillment by a wide variety of, of possible events unlikely. Check, right? Talk about detail. There's tons of detail, and I'm telling you, um, I buried a lot of the detail. We could go into way more, but we just don't have enough time. So there's, it's not only clear what Daniel's referring to, there's a lot of detail to make it uh, unlikely for a wide variety of events to fulfill it. Number two, the event uh, that can fulfill the prophecy must be unusual or unique. Again, when you look at other holy texts from different world religions, you search in vain for anything that would even compare to this at all. This is completely unique. Third, the prophecy must be known to have been made before the event that is supposed to be in its fulfillment. Now, Daniel claims that he was writing during the time that, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was around. And so he was writing in the 600s and in the um, late 500s. So, you know, most people have raised questions. Okay, is this even legitimate? I mean, maybe, maybe Daniel or somebody who is claimed to be Daniel wrote this after a lot of these events were already fulfilled. And yet, there's no way that that could have happened. We're certain that Daniel was actually written before Jesus arrived on the scene. Uh, in 1947, a uh, Bedouin boy actually uncovered what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we actually have fragments, eight of them, from Daniel that date to the late 2nd century BCE. Here are two fragments from uh, chapter 9. Uh, could be verses 12 through 17. We're not exactly sure, but it's certainly from Daniel 9. And these are carbon dated to these times, so, so it's reliable. What about number four? The event foretold must not be of the sort that could be the result of an educated guess. You know, the apostles, they didn't actually have access to a lot of the ancient records that we have today because modern archaeology has actually uncovered those things. And so many of the, the different details that we have today that help us arrive at these chronologies were buried in rubble. In fact, um, 
Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, a learned man, suggested that it was actually Titus who fulfilled Daniel 9, verse 25 through 26 in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. So here's a guy who is a scholar of his day, brilliant, and he arrived at the wrong date. Finally, the event that fulfills the prophecy cannot be staged or the relevant circumstances manipulated by those aware of the prophecy in such a way as to intentionally cause the prophecy to be fulfilled. Yeah, that, that would be one way to fabricate this, right? That the apostles were like, uh, okay, it looks like Daniel's prophecy is going to be fulfilled here soon, so why don't we just say that Jesus died in AD 33? And that way, it looks like Jesus fulfilled this prophetic event in Daniel 9. So, it raises the question, what if the New Testament writers align Jesus' death with, his, uh, with this prediction? Well, first of all, the disciples never tell us that Jesus died in AD 33. You know, a lot of the details that we see in the New Testament help us to infer that Jesus died in AD 33, the ones that we already covered. And so, for them to fabricate this would assume that the disciples are like, okay, so for future generations, we need to convince them that Jesus actually fulfilled Daniel 9, verse 25 and 26. So, you know what we should do? What we should do is we should mention Pontius Pilate so that, that way they could, they could figure out that this was probably within the range of, of 80, 26 to 36. And then, you know, maybe what we should also do is we should mention that there were four Passovers in John. Okay, yeah, that would be good. So that way um, they could figure out that it was probably sometime, uh, you know, either 27, 30, 33, or 36. Oh, oh, and then, you know, what we should also do, we should mention the part about Herod and his temple that it was completed, uh, uh, you know, 46 years later when Jesus cleansed the temple. That way, they could figure out that, you know, this happened in AD 33. Why would, why would they go that route when they could have easily said that Jesus died in the seventh year of Pontius Pilate's appointment as governor in Judea? It would have been very simple to do that. Not to mention... The disciples, the New Testament writers, never actually referenced Daniel 9, verse 25 and 26 in the New Testament at all because they were unaware. They didn't understand. Secondly, why would they lie about this? What would be their motive? You know, maybe they were, they were looking to get rich. Maybe they wanted to get a powerful public appointment Maybe they wanted to be in the spotlight. Well, it turns out they got the spotlight, but it wasn't the kind that they really wanted. The Romans hunted them down and executed all but one, the Apostle John, and the early church fathers actually tell us in gruesome detail how many of them died. So when you look at the Gospels and you look at the New Testament letters, the New Testament writers never lived this lavish lifestyle. Many of them lived in poverty, suffered persecution, and eventual death. John, the lucky guy, actually ended up uh, exiled on the island of Patmos where, where he wrote the book of Revelation. 
So he was, he was the lucky one out of the, out of the 12. So they didn't have really any motive. Number three, we don't even really need the New Testament to show that God fulfilled this prediction. You might be scratching your head about this one. Well, um, Tacitus, the Roman historian in his famous book, The Annals, says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations called the Christians. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. There you go. What about this? Josephus and his Antiquities, 18 verse 33. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross. Josephus was not a Christian. Um, and yet he, he verifies that this man Jesus really existed and that he died under Pontius Pilate's appointment as governor. Here's the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 43a. On the eve of the Passover, notice that, the eve of the Passover on Friday, Yeshua was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of Passover. So there you have Pontius Pilate, 26 through 36. And then you have the Babylonian Talmud, as well as Josephus, who claim that Jesus died on Passover, leaving us those four dates. So that gets us well within the 30s. Pretty amazing. So what's the takeaway? I think, first of all, it becomes clear. Daniel predicted the death of the most influential human in history 500 years in advance. And you might be sitting here kind of skeptical, saying, well, I don't know about that. Let me ask you this. What is your explanation for this? I mean, I, I've been studying this for many, many years, and as I emerge from my studies time and time again, I become more and more convinced, and really, I'm dumbfounded by this prophecy how God could do this. Number two, you won't find anything like this in any other holy book. I challenge you to find anything that would even compare to this. Third, God has given us objective evidence for belief in his son. Really, where all of this converges to is the man Jesus Christ. God wanted to pre-authenticate the coming of his son Jesus so that you would know that he indeed died for your sins, that it would be unmistakable. You know, I remember a number of years ago, a few guys uh, decided that they were gonna join the dodgeball club at OSU, and uh, they met these two sharp scientists, students at the time, 
and invited them out to hear a few lectures like this. And I remember one night as we were all hanging out over at one of our houses, uh, one of the guys actually brought up Daniel 9 to these two um, non-believing people, guys, and was like, man, you should check out this prophecy. And so he called me over and he said, hey, let's, why don't we lay, these, lay this out for these guys? And so in about 10 or 15 minutes, we laid out Daniel 9. And of course, as soon as we got done talking, these guys just were, you know, hitting us with a, a hundred questions. But at the end, we were like, so do you feel satisfied that we've answered your questions? And they're just like, I don't even know what to do with this. They were just confounded. And a few weeks later, they actually came to Christ. And they're still with us here today. They're, uh, you know, leading for God. And so, you know, you might think to yourself, to be a Christian, you need to sort of take your intellectual hat, hang it at the doorway, and come in so that you could take your leap of faith. As it turns out, you can study the Bible and maintain intellectual integrity. Finally, why not ask God for the rest of the evidence tonight? Why not turn to him and say, if you're out there, if you're real, show yourself to me. And if it's a God who's actually there and who doesn't remain silent, he's gonna talk back and he'll reveal himself to you. All right, let's pray. Thanks that you're uh, even mindful of us, that you would uh, concern yourself with our intellectual hang-ups to give us something like this. And um, it goes to show that you're a God who speaks, a God who wants to be known, a God who wants to be in a relationship with us. And um, we thank you for that. I pray for anyone here tonight who uh, may have come in as a skeptic, that they would... um, venture to call out to you and see if you're actually real. And um, we trust that you're going to talk back, that you're going to speak because you are real. And um, we uh, pray, Lord, that, um, you know, as they go along this spiritual journey, try to, you know, find truth, that uh, they would encounter you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.